Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. We're going back to that passage here this morning. If you go to Washington, D.C., there's many things there to see that have a connection to our history and uh, what we are as a people. A country uh, with much uh, has gone on over the last 250 uh, years uh, that uh, we've been a country. One of the places uh, that you can visit is a place known as the National Archives. It's a museum that you go in there, and uh, the main attraction is this, is that you can go in there and see uh, copies of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. You can go in there and see the documents that uh, were part of A, separating us from England, and B, giving us uh, the rights uh, and privileges that we have in the United States uh, as citizens of the United States. And you can go through the back of that place, and there's a bunch of other things that are there that uh, are collections of different items. And what the National Archives does is it collects a lot of documents that relate either to our country or more specifically to what goes on in the presidential, the congressional, and the judicial branch of government. If you ever want to be president of the United States, beware. They'll find your report cards because they got report cards of every president. Uh, they have all sorts of different things like that that you can just go and it's documented. You can find it. In fact, uh, the last number that I saw is that they've got over 13 billion pages and documents that they have that they have access to and you can only get online and see about two to three percent of what's digit they have digitalized in the sense of you being able to just go look at it wherever but they take all the documents of the president of the united states and when he becomes uh, no longer president it's turned over uh, what's gone on during his time frame is given over to the archives along with a lot of other things that go on you could say that the National Archives is kind of the recorder and the resource for what's gone on, especially when it comes to our government and the like, though they have a lot of other documents that are a part of that collection. I mean, it is a wealth of knowledge to be found in the National Archives. Thinking about that, uh, we have a God who is infinite in his knowledge. Okay, there's nothing that he doesn't know about. You think about what the scripture says, there's nothing that he doesn't know about that's happened, and he knows all of the possibilities that could happen. He knew, you know, knows all of those, and he would have known what would happen if certain things would take place. He knew all of those things, and he still does. But when we read the scripture, it's not that we get all of his knowledge, nor did he deem it important enough to give us that knowledge. To give us everything that he knows in the scripture. However, he did retain and record a number of things in our Bible. He moved men through the Holy Spirit to record certain events and, and certain details that generations after would need to know about. It would be important for them to know. I have to remind myself of that as I come to a passage like Genesis chapter 38. It's not accidental that God stuck this passage that we've already read this morning, and we didn't read all the details that were there, but you read a story like this, and it's kind of, kind of the story that you, as a pastor, if you're aware of the Scripture, you're kind of going, ooh, I'm going to have to come to that. 
I'm going to have to preach that. And there's stories like that throughout Genesis. When I, you read Genesis, you're like, okay, the book that starts everything, you get all the details, it kind of sets the, the story of the Bible in motion. But you have stories like Noah who gets drunk, Lot who grandfathers his own, or, grand, or fathers his own grandchildren. I mean, you just go on like this. You've got stories like that. You've got a story about Jacob and his wives fighting amongst each other. I mean, you just go on. There's stories that you're just like, did those stories need to be included? As a pastor, I have to remind myself of what the, the Scripture tells us in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16, it says this, all Scripture, and at that point, the Scripture that was being talked about was the Old Testament. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God and is, and here's the important word, it's profitable. You know, the easy thing for me to do is to come to Genesis 38 and go, you know what, I like the story of Joseph, let's just go to 39. No, that would have been the easy thing to do. But you realize that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine. You go, what's that? Teaching, telling you what happened, what the facts are. Doctrine, reproof, you go, what's that? It tells us what things are wrong and oftentimes reminds us of when we're wrong. It tells us a correction, how to make those things right and how they were made right in some situations. And then this, it gives us instruction in righteousness. You go, what's that? It's the idea of child training. With children, you have to over and over and over again remind them of something before they learn it. So it is for us as believers. We have to be told things over and over again. As you read through the Scripture, you, you find things repeated over and over again. You go, why? I got it the first time. Probably not. But uh, you, you, we read through it again and again, and we finally come to the conclusion, oh, this is what's right. And you say, for what purpose? That the man of God or the woman of God can be perfect. And you go, what's that? The idea is mature or ready. That the man of God is perfect, thoroughly furnished, thoroughly equipped unto all good works so as we come to a passage like this in genesis 38 where we talk about this one by the name of judah it's almost like he's interfering with the joseph story it's just thrown in here this story about judah it's important and by the time we get to the end of this at the beginning you may not see why this is important when it comes uh, to the scripture why this is recorded and i'm not going to let you know right away i'm going to let you get to the point but uh, there is a reason why every passage of Scripture is in the Word of God. And so this morning, if we were just simply to have a theme to start our direction this morning, it would be this, that God's grace can change a wicked man. That God's grace can change a wicked man. You look at this story, and it breaks into two different sections. The first part you see in verse number one, it came to pass at that time. You go, when does this take place? It's at the same time that Joseph gets sold off into Egypt. Okay, that, that's what it's referring to. But as you read down in the chapter, you get down uh, to verse number 12. It says, in the process of time. The idea is a long time afterwards. This isn't taking place just a day or two afterwards. This rest of the story takes place many years later. But you have two different stories that take place here in this uh, main character of Judah being a part of this. 
And what you see initially in reading this very first story in the life of uh, Judah is this, is that God's grace is sometimes rejected by those closest to God's blessing. God's grace is sometimes rejected by those who are closest to God's blessing. Say, what are we talking about here? Well, you have Judah, who's an individual who's going away from the blessing of God. I hadn't caught this when reading this story initially, uh, and have read it multiple times when it comes to the story of Judah, but in studying this, I didn't catch this, but it is right there at the beginning of the story. In verse number one, you have this, this statement that it says that it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. You go, what does that mean? He leaves his family. I mean, he just up and leaves his brothers, his father. He leaves all of this behind. And you think about this. This is the one family in the land. There could be several others. But one of the families in the land that actually knows the one true God and the like. And what he does is really the idea of going down is that he leaves. He abandons his brothers, his family. He goes away from them. He separates from them. He doesn't really want anything to do with them. And you say, what does he do? Well, he finds a friend that's not the best of friends because you read at the end of verse 1, he turned into a certain Adumalite by the name of Hira. You go, who's an Adumalite? Uh, that's a location of the nation of Israel, but it's simply saying this, he's a Canaanite. Okay, He's a pagan. He doesn't know who God is. He's a person who lives for this present age and he's got all sorts of gods and he's the best friend of Judah. This is Judah's best friend. He's the one who solves Judah's problems as we see later on or attempts to solve Judah's problems later on. He's that type of individual who comes along Judah and is not putting him, pushing him towards what is right and good. No, he's just a, an individual who's okay with trying to solve some of the difficulties that, that Judah gets himself into that aren't right. And to top it all off, you have this uh, story as you read in verse number two that Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her uh, in unto her. He marries this one. That's a Canaanite, and we've already been warned in the story in Genesis that these young men uh, throughout the story abraham's son is not to marry somebody who's from the canaanites and jacob is sent off so that he won't marry a canaanite and you kind of get the impression as you go through here that god didn't want these individual marrying canaanites go outside the land do something else but don't find somebody that's from the canaanites god had made this clear but you know what judah goes you know i'm gonna go ahead and do that anyhow and he does this I mean, what you find him doing is that he just goes and does his own thing, and it's just an indicator from the location that he goes down from his brothers. The writer there, uh, Moses, he's just indicating the fact it's not going well. He's in a downward spiral. He's not going the direction he should. He's not even close to being uh, who he should be and where he should be at. He's choosing individuals that aren't going to bring him closer to God. They were going to take him farther away. And he marries into this. He binds himself uh, to this culture. And you read the story, sadly, as you follow it along, his children multiply the wickedness of their father. 
You know, you wish your kids would, uh, you know, take your good characteristics, and sometimes they do, and they, they magnify them. But you know what? You find out your kids oftentimes magnify the bad things about you. And you look at Judah's uh, sons, and they aren't good people. The first son uh, that uh, we have in the story as we go along, uh, they get old enough. I mean, you go, how old, uh, you know, he has these children. Uh, how old are they now? Probably in their late teens, early 20s. And this first son that is named there, Ur, uh, that you have there in verse number seven, uh, he's supposed to marry this uh, Tamar and raise up the family line beyond Judah to extend that family line. And when he marries this one, it just simply says about him, and this is only details he gives, uh, is this, is that he's wicked and God slew him. That's it. God doesn't even go into the details about him. And whenever you see this phraseology already in Genesis, it's when God sees this, he judges. It's the same type of terminology God used in Genesis chapter 6, where he saw that man was wicked and his thoughts were only evil continually. You go, what happened right after that? Noah's flood. And then you see in Genesis chapter 18 that God comes down and he sees that Sodom's cry of wickedness is going up before him. And it's the same word, this word for wicked is that terminology. You go, what happens? Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah no longer exist on the map because God judges them. What you have with Judah's first son here, it just simply describes him as wicked and God immediately slays him. Not even told doesn't go into the details. And you say, what goes on here? Well, the, the details that go on here, it's kind of different from what we're used to. But back in that culture, if you had the first son die, the second son would marry the widow. And that first son that would come out of that marriage would become the son of the first man who died. It would carry on the family name. And you say, is this the normal practice? You can read this in ancient cultures. This was the normal for all of them. And you even read in the scripture, this is the idea of what is called a Leverite marriage, or Leverite marriage where if you had somebody die in the nation of Israel, eventually, you would have them, the next son in line would marry that widow, and the first child out of that would become the son of the one who died, carry on that family line, that name, and carry it on. And then the rest of the children would be considered uh, the one who was married to that woman. It was just a normal thing in that culture. So here what you have is the second son by the name of Onan. And Onan uh, is uh, told that he is going to have to marry Tamar, and he does, but he's a wicked man also. He's selfish in this sense because we're told that he doesn't want to raise up a son to his brother. You go, why? Well, if he does, that means he's no longer the one in line to be in charge of the family. He loses that right. Besides that, right now he's looking at the fact that from his dad, he'll get a double portion of the inheritance because he's now the first son in line. But if he has a son that goes to follow the father that has died before him and he becomes the descendant of him he suddenly gets part of the inheritance onan doesn't want to raise up a son 
doesn't want to go through that process of raising a son and losing out on all of these privileges. He's a selfish man. But you also see this, that he's selfish in the fact that he carries out being married to Tamar, but will not give her a child. Refuses to do this. And because of that, you find in this story that God strikes him dead. I mean, here's this son. He's selfish. He uses Tamar for self-gratification. And as one has described it this, this way, this attitude of gratification without responsibility. I mean, think about this. Raising a child is not easy. It requires for parents sacrifice and selflessness. There are a lot of things you would like to do, but you can't because you have children. There are things that you need to do for them. And, and you really do when you become a parent. You're taking up certain things. But here you have this own and doesn't want to raise this child. Merely uses Tamar for self-gratification. And you have this. This attitude of gratification without responsibility has been repeated from generation to generation in immoral people. Now, I'll say this, and I'll say this as kindly as I can. We have a generation today that wants all of the gratification, but none of the responsibility. We have a generation that comes out of what is known as the sexual revolution, and they believe that that is okay to fulfill whatever desire that you want, but it's a generation that more and more is saying this, we don't want children to be responsible for we don't want to have children. Now, understand this. There are some people that can't and would love to have children. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. But you find this generation right now that is uh, making up their mind. We've decided we don't want to have kids. We don't want to be responsible for kids. And you're going, why would you do that? Because think about this. One of the major responsibilities of humanity from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 was to what? When God created man, he said that you're supposed to have dominion over the face of the earth. You're supposed to rule over the earth and use the things and the resources here to accomplish things. But the second thing that was supposed to happen is that they were supposed to do this, that they were to, uh, to go across the face of the earth and replenish the face of the earth. They were to populate the earth. That was the responsibility of humanity in general. But what you have in, in today's society, and you're finding this more and more, if you, may, you look at studies, and they even acknowledge this in Western culture, that the rate of having children is far lower than it should be. In fact, in some cultures now, they're realizing that the population would completely decline if it wasn't for third world countries. And people coming in and having multiple children and the like. And you have Western culture that's going, you know what? We don't want kids because they're a hindrance to our plans, our wants, our desires, our likes. And children will be a hindrance to that. So we don't want to have children. I mean, that's why this man was struck dead. Because he didn't want to raise up a son to his brother. Didn't want to raise up a son at all. He's an individual who's completely selfish out for self-gratification and God goes nope and has him destroyed because God takes this seriously the repopulating of the earth there's a responsibility that we have as humanity but then you see this at the end of this story that when 
that doesn't happen. It was this individual by the name of Sheila, who is the third son of Judah. And well, what was supposed to happen was he should eventually marry Tamar and raise up seed to that first son. So that family line goes on. But what happens is this, as you have in verse number 11, Judah just simply says this to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at thy father's house till Sheila, my son, be grown. Okay, you wait in your father's house. I'm not going to take up responsibility for you, which he should have, but he didn't. And he says, you wait there. And then when Sheila's old enough, I'll let you marry him. But what the scripture does, and it doesn't, it's hard for us to see this, but verse 11 in the middle there, it's kind of saying, but he doesn't plan to do this. It says there, for he said, okay, this is his thinking in the back of his head. He says this, lest perventure he die also as his brethren. He goes, okay, go away and stay with your dad and I'll let you marry Sheila when he's not. And then he kind of goes, no, you never happened because you're, you're a person who kills off their husbands. So I'm not going to give you my son because I'm afraid he might die too. I mean, that's the thinking. So he gives this false front where, okay, just wait long enough and we'll be able to raise the family line and continue that family line and be able to do that. You can marry the son of mine and be able to do this. But behind his, behind his hand, he's just kind of saying, not going to happen. Don't plan to do that. And it becomes very obvious after a time when the son's old enough and it doesn't happen. Which leads us to the second story that we have in verse number 12. And what you see there is this, that God's grace works through unusual circumstances and ignored people. Here you have a, a Tamar who is the ignored person. In fact, in this whole story, she's, you know, you kind of go, she can't be the best person here, but she is, even though she's a Canaanite. She's the best story, ironically, the Canaanite woman. She's the only bright spot in the family. Uh, one has put it this way, Tamar qualifies as the heroine of the story, for she risked everything to fight for her right to be a mother in the family of Judah and to protect the family. In fact, you think about this, she's actually the noble one because she's still clinging to Judah and his family. You know, the people who are writing this and commentating on this go, this is kind of like the story of Ruth. Remember the story of Ruth? Their husbands die, and so uh, Ruth and Orpah's husbands die, and Naomi's husband dies, and Naomi says, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And Naomi, who's a Moabite, not an Israelite, is told by Naomi, you stay here with your family and you cling to them and be with them and be with those individuals. And Ruth says, oh no, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people and that. There, there's kind of an element here. Tamar just doesn't go back to her old Canaanite culture. She's actually going and saying, okay, we need to continue this family line, but she stays attached to the group that's actually the one that should be the blessing to her, someone who knows and should know the one true God. She stays attached to that. 
And she comes up with a plot because she realizes, as you say in verse number, verse number 14 at the end, she realizes this, that she saw that Sheila was grown and that she was not going to be given to him for wife. And she's thinking, how in the world are we going to keep this family line going on? I mean, this is an important thing in that culture. I mean, it's hard for us to understand this, but this is an important thing to carry on a family line, a family name to keep that going. They had laws about this, written in cultures to make sure this happened. And she's going, oh, how are we going to keep the family line going on like it should? Well, she comes up with a plan, and the plan's not a very good plan. And as you read the story, it's not her actions that are noble. It's her motivation. Okay, her motivation is right. She just goes about it in the wrong way. In comparison to everybody else in the story whose motivation and actions are all wrong. But what she decides is this, and she must know the character of her father-in-law, Judah. But it was a time of sheep shearing in the country there, and, and as you read, uh, and that was usually a time of celebration, sort of like for us when we think about our season that we're coming up to here, Thanksgiving. It's a time of celebration. It's a time to get together, to have feasting and the like. Well, sheep shearing was that type of a season for them because here you are at the end of a season now and you've suddenly gotten this abundance that's come in from uh, these animals that are there. And so there is this element of life that's going on. And she realizes where he's going. She figures out from reports that Judah is going to go to a place called Timnath and he's going to shear the sheep there. And she knows his character enough that he's an immoral individual individual and so what she does is that she goes and sits by the roadside and it says that she veils herself which it's hard for us to understand this but some of this veiling could communicate the fact that they were some sort of temple prostitute or a cultic prostitute or the like and it would communicate that and she just merely sits beside the road with a tent that she set up and Judah comes by and sees her, and his immediate reaction is this. Well, okay, it's a time of celebration. It's a time for fun for me. And he goes, okay, here's this one who seems to be one that will do that for me. And he says, can I come and visit you? And she goes, well, what are you going to give me? He doesn't have anything with him. But he says, I promise to give you a goat of some kind. And she's like, oh no, 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 we aren't bargaining that way. I need something that I can hold on to that guarantees that I'm going to get payment. And you find that uh, Judah, as you read the story here, that he comes and he says, well, I can give you this. Uh, verse number 18, she said, or what pledge shall I give thee? And he said, thy signet and thy bracelet, uh, bracelet and thy staff that is in thine hand. Now understand, when we talk about the signet and the seal, that is something that was very important in that society. You can go down to what used to be known as the Oriental Institute. It goes by a different name now in the University of Chicago. And they've got hundreds of these things called seals. And what they look like is little cylinders. You say, what do you mean by a cylinder? Uh, sort of like what uh, the best way to describe it is a spool that you normally have thread on it, kind of, you know, you can roll it along and that type of thing. But in that day, what you did is you etched figures and symbols into that cylinder. And what you would do in a culture like that, if you wanted to seal a document or something like that, and you had these clay tablets that you have, you would roll that cylinder across it and it would seal a document or seal a, 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 a deal 
And what you would do is you would oftentimes wear this either around your wrist, you would have the cylinder attached with a string through it, or around your neck. And she just simply says, I want your signet, the seal that's there, and I want your staff. And you go, why the staff? Because each person's staff had special markings on the top of it, you know, so we know it's my staff, not somebody else's. She goes, I want those two things. And you find that Judah goes in, and then he leaves and thinks nothing of it other than to just simply find his friend and say, go back and find this one uh, woman that was there. Give her this goat that I promised her. Get my, get my seal and my staff back. He's not even willing to do it himself. That's the thing that's you know, you know, upsetting here. He's not even willing to, to be a person to go and go with this pledge and go and do what he should do. His friend goes in verse 21, and the people there go, there's no harlot that lives here. There's no prostitute that lives here. And he asks around, looks around, and there's nothing there. And so verse 23, Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be ashamed. Behold, I sent this kid, lest uh, we be found under her. He's basically saying, uh, well, let's, I don't want to make a big scene about this and be made a joke of. So you know what? Just let her have them. Let her have the seal, let her have the staff, uh, and we'll just go on about life as if everything's okay. And you read through a story like this and you say, how is God's grace going to work through circumstances like this? Well, it happens at the end of this story. You find in verse number 24, it says this, that it came to pass about three months after. So after this event where Judah is just as a moral man uh, and he goes in to this harlot, came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with a child by whoredom. Now, think about this. Judah has sent her to live with her father-in-law, or excuse me, with her family. He's a father-in-law, has had nothing to do with her. He's, he's pawned off responsibility for her to someone else, even though she's his responsibility. But the report comes back that this has happened, that she's with child. You know what his response is? Verse number 24 at the end, bring her forth and let her be burnt. Now, she's been immoral. She deserves to die. And you're thinking... Judah is one who is just as immoral. But that's his initial response. I mean, he's, he's a wicked man. He views things from his perspective. And he is willing to have her burned. No questions asked. In verse 25, when she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, By the man whose these are am I with child. And she said, discern, I pray you, whose these are, the signet and the bracelet and the staff. Doesn't even sound like she really shows up here. She just says, okay, send a message and send these items with and just say, whose are these? Give me an answer on that and I'll show up. Verse 26, it says this, that Judah acknowledged them and said, she hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son, and he knew her again no more. You go, what's going on here? This is the change point. 
This is the change point in Judah's life. He's a different man after this point. You go, why? Because he suddenly faced up with his sin. It's sort of like that situation with David and Bathsheba, and he is happily going along in life like everything's okay. He's covered for whatever. And then in chapter 51, we find the account of how David responds when Nathan comes to him and says, Thou art the man. You sinned. So it is here. Judah is confronted with these items, and it's just simply saying, you're just as guilty. And she, he makes this statement, she was more righteous than I was. Because his responsibility was this, to make sure the family line continued. He should have given his son to her to be married to her. To raise up the family name and to continue the family name. He hadn't done that. He hadn't done anything right. She at least was concerned about that. That's why he says, she's more righteous than, she, or th- than I was. And that statement at the end that he doesn't know her anymore. I mean, he's a, an immoral man. He's the type of individual that would be like this. He's not anymore. He's changed. He's different. Now, I I say this because verses 27 through 30, I just simply say this, that God's grace changes the person. See, what we've missed to this point is the, the point of the whole passage, why it was included in the Word of God. And it's this, that why we're in the middle of the Joseph story. Okay, Genesis 37, you have Joseph being the center of everything, and Joseph is the and one who tells the dreams, and then Joseph is the one taken by his brother and sent off to Egypt, and you go, what a great story, let's follow this on, and all of a sudden the Judah story's thrown in. You're like, couldn't we just continue with Joseph, because that's a really good story. But what God is doing is that he's comparing Joseph and Judah. He's taking these two individuals, Judah, who will eventually be the leader of the nation of Israel. He is going to be the one through who kings come. He's being compared to Joseph. And as you look at this chapter, there's one chapter here for Judah, and it covers 22 years. Okay, that's how long it takes to cover. We have Joseph's life, and it's going to be the next four chapters that covers 22 years. Okay, so we have one story compressing the story of Judah, and we're told this, but we're told the story of Joseph. But they have similar lives because in Genesis chapter 38, it says when the story starts with Judah, that he goes down from his brothers. Look at Genesis chapter 39 and verse 1. It says this, and Joseph was what? Brought down, or the idea is he went down to Egypt. The stories start the same for Judah and Joseph. They're both going down. And in the end, think about this. They marry foreign women. Joseph eventually marries an Egyptian. Has sons there. I mean, there's that comparison that they both leave family. They both marry foreign women. They both have uh, sons. And then you look at the story, in this case, that they're both deceived. And when they are eventually deceived, they have to answer to a piece of evidence. 
Think about this. Joseph listens to this woman that's there, Potiphar's wife, but he's trying to avoid her all this time. But she gets him one day by snaring him in this house and she grabs onto his outfit and he has to run out. But when it comes to his court case, he's got to answer the fact that she's got his coat. Judah has to answer for the fact that this woman's got his seal and a staff. So there's this idea that's here. But here's the thing. There is an irony, and one has put it this way. You have promiscuous Judah who grasps Tamar's seductive offer to, and expands his family. You have Joseph, chaste Joseph, who resists Potiphar's wife's seductive demand and ends up in an undeserved dungeon. In both scenes, the woman retains tokens of the man to produce condemning evidence. But I want to at least say this, that at the end of the story, God blesses both of these individuals. He blesses Judah and he blesses Joseph. Now think about it this way. Joseph's story is one of faithfulness to God. And God blesses him. He's always faithful to God. He's always pointing people to God. He's faithful to God throughout the story. In the end, God's blessing him. But think about the story of Judah. Judah is a story of brokenness by God. This is the thing that breaks him. And he's still blessed by God. I mean, think about this. And at the end of the story, you have God's, uh, God does something where he changes Judah's perspective of himself. By the time we're done with this Joseph story, he's... He's no longer separated from his brothers. He's actually the spokesman for them. He's come back to the family. He's the individual who is, when they go down to Egypt and they're speaking to the, what they think is Pharaoh's representative, he's the one who's giving the lead out. He's the one who is uh, making statements. And he is the one who is actually moved by the fact of the guilt that they had over selling their brother off. He's a changed individual. I mean, at the level of Joseph's story, Judah exhibits the worst and best of the brothers as a whole, becoming the chief spokesman and leader of the band. Chapter 38, what we just went through, shows him at his worst. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 42, 43, and 44, you're seeing him at his best. And you go, what happened there? God interfered with his life. God did a work to break him and he used the situation uh, of his own wickedness and an individual who would ignore otherwise this woman who was a widow and whatever else that that story that went on there and would have been ignored but God used her to point to the fact that he was not a righteous man he wasn't where he should be and God broke him And so you look at Judah, and at times we think there are certain people that are undeserving of God's grace and that God could never do anything to change them. Look at Judah. Judah is the exact polar opposite of Joseph, who is a man who's faithful to God throughout his life, and you have an individual who spends 22 years of his life doing his own thing, and God breaks him through a circumstance that he's suddenly faced with, and it changes him to be the individual that he should be. God broke him. 
And we forget about this fact that this one, Judah, with the story that went on here with Pharez and Zerah, his sons through Tamar, uh, Pharez, uh, who is the second son, he's the youngest one, but his brother makes it out first and they tie a band around his hand, it goes back in and Pharez is born second. You have this conflict between twins, an older and a younger one. And guess who's the one who's going to be the lead? The younger one, Pharez. God's going to use him, sort of like God, instead of using Esau, used Jacob. Well, God's going to use Pharez. And you go, to do what? Well, he's going to be the line through whom kings are going to come. And what you're going to have is this, as you follow it out, and we get closer to this Christmas season, and we read stories like Matthew chapter 1, and it starts off with this genealogy of who Jesus came through. And it starts this way, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it says this, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brother, Judas, and the idea is Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. Right there in the story, it's telling us, listen, he had son, his sons through this woman Tamar, not a woman of great reputation, but a one who was more righteous than he was. And then God does this through Perez. You, you read that line, Perez begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and you just follow it through, and you get to the end. He's the great-grandfather of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This man's in the line of Christ. Really? He's not deserving of that. Well, that's what grace is. It's something you don't deserve. God does something and gives you something that you don't deserve. God gives Judah the chance and a gift that he can return to God, and he's one who is blessed not because of what his character had been like for years, it's because he was one who turned to God. And I was reminded of this, that one day uh, we're hopefully all going to be in heaven. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you put your faith and trust in Him, you're promised a home eternally with Him in heaven. And we have a description of what that heavenly city is like in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And you have this city that has 12 gates in it so that people can go in and out and enjoy that new earth that's been created. And you can go in and out of that city. And do you realize that each one of those gates is named after one of the sons of Israel? So when you're in that heavenly city and you go walking in and out of the gates, one of those gates is going to have the name Judah over it. kind of going he doesn't deserve that but god is gracious god gives opportunities and helps those that don't deserve it and he does this in life and he can take a wicked person and break him and give him privileges that he doesn't deserve a family line that is going to be known for eternity by its chief individual it's a part of it jesus the christ and you can then see his name etched right into that heavenly city and one day we'll meet him and you go why it's because of the grace of god that broke him and we have to be reminded of this because god does take individuals who you would look at and they have just run their lives and done whatever they want and you would call it, categorize them as wicked and ungodly individuals and god can't do anything for them 
And what you've forgotten is the grace of God. God can change individuals like that. I had something that happened about a week and a half ago. I heard an account of somebody that had been uh, part of the youth group for part of the time. When I was youth pastor, didn't last very long in the youth group because he went and did his own thing. A couple weeks ago, I heard an account of this, that somebody was talking and they brought up his name. And I'm just like, what is going, you know, what are they going to say about this individual? And this individual made this statement. I've been counseling them for the last two years. That individual's in church. His girlfriend, who was just as wild and outrageous as he is, got saved. He's saved. Every time the church doors are open, they're a part of the church. And you kind of go, what's that? That's the grace of God. You can take a person who decided to go their own way, do their own thing, ignore the things that they heard. They were close. You would say this, they're close to the blessing of God. They, 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 they hear the th- word. They get a chance to, to hear these things and be around uh, people that know this and they go their own way. You know what? God, by His grace, can bring them back. So for us, as we look at the story of Judah, we might go, what a horrible, rotten story. But the idea for us is to understand this, that God's able to shape this individual of the family of Jacob that is the, one of the most wretched individuals and by his grace can shape him into the person he needs to be through circumstances that bring him face to face with himself and make him a person who is what he should be by the grace of God. In contrast to Joseph, who is faithfully serving God this whole time, but it's still the grace of God that gets him to where he needs to be at through that whole story. And both of them are stories of God's grace, God's working behind the scenes. And so for us, as we just think and contemplate maybe individuals that we look at and go, there's no hope for an individual like that. God can't do anything. Well, think about this. There were no preachers around Judah. There was no Bible that he was reading. But you know what? God got him to a point where he came back to God. And God can do that for any individual that you're thinking of in your mind saying they would never come back to God. Well, what you do is you look at the story of Judah and go, God can take an individual like that and by his grace change him. Without any preachers, without any, anything else going on, God can do it through the circumstances that they face where they finally are broken enough to come back to God, and they do. And God, by His grace, breaks them and changes them and gives them the hope of eternal life. He can do that. Look at the story of Judah. Lord, we thank You for a passage like this. That you can take individuals and by your grace, circumstances you run them through, you can change them forever. Lord, we pray that uh, for individuals that we may not know personally, but are ones that family members here know and just kind of shake their head and go, that person could never come to Christ. There doesn't seem to be any hope or possibility of change to that individual. They've gone their own way. They're doing their own thing. 
May they be comforted that you're a God who is still working. Even in the darkest of situations to draw people to yourself. So may we pray all the more fervently for your grace to be bestowed on individuals and change them. That's what's so amazing about your grace is that it's got that ability to take the worst of sinners and make them a child of your own. So, Lord, may we be individuals that pray for your grace to be bestowed on individuals, that you do a work to change and transform them, just as you did in our life. That you, by your grace, got us to the point where we recognized we were sinners with no hope, needing a Savior, and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be individuals that see your display of grace. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.